So picture this. Okay. It's a balmy day. Oh, really? Yeah, it was pretty hot in Sydney. Yeah, it was actually. I have to tell you, I showed up to work at 3.30 in the morning. Holy shit. I was doing the breakfast shift. Oh, God, breakfast. And, you know, around 9, I was getting ready to just relax, maybe pop down and get some toast and some coffee. Because you'd have been finished by then. I would have been finished. Yeah, 9 o'clock. And what did I see? I saw a flag. A flag that was from an Arabic description, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And it was unfurled and it was being shown on all the TV screens. Everyone. Every single one. And there's a lot of TV screens in that place. 100%. And all of a sudden I realised that something was going on. Let's talk about it. Okay. You're listening to I Spied, the tired radio journalist of Australian intelligence. Has anyone got coffee? Like a double or a triple or even like a quadruple, just coffee, please. There's a Diet Coke in the fridge. Not good enough. Oh, sorry. Hello, welcome to I Spied. I'm David Callan, and with me is journalist and sometime patient friend of mine, uh, Michelle Stevenson. Are you calling me a friend? Oh, I think it's about time we did that. It's been a year we've been locked in this box together. I think it's... It's time. It's time. So, there I was. I had seen that something was going on. At first, we just heard it was a robbery. We thought it was a robbery in the Lindt Cafe. Yes. And then, all of a sudden, we thought something different was going on. It was a siege. Yeah. So, I go down to my program director's office and Mm -hmm. I said, look... There is something going on and I think we're going to need to start taking it seriously. Now, the one good thing about radio is it's so agile it can oh, react yeah. to any situation. Oh, also, I mean, you don't have to look glamorous to be on uh, radio. Oh, you do. I was gonna- <laughs> you do. You do. So, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you, you calling look- me fat? <laughs> you look fabulous. You, I mean, I just sit here trying to do a silver fox and just yes. looking like a very old Labrador puppy. Yes. But no, uh, but as you said, it is exceptionally agile. Yes. So all of a sudden, my program... Program director said, right, we are going to disrupt programming for the rest of the day. And that's what we did also into the next day. Mm. And what happened... Through the course of that day, I was doing news reports every 15 minutes live on air. And what was I doing? I was collecting information the best way I know how. At that stage... The police weren't really telling us anything. Mm-hmm. We weren't getting any information from ambulances and the information was flying. Yeah. So we were, we were relying on what 2GB was kind of saying because at that point, Ray Hadley's producer was on the line to some of the hostages. Oh, so they were calling out. Oh, of course, they were calling out of the cafe. Yeah, they were calling out of the cafe because Man Monis wanted to be on air. Yeah. So we were getting information from them, but also we knew that things were going on because all of a sudden – the Opera House, the bridge, they were slowly closing. Yeah. They said that it was time to empty the city. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to leave the city. Now, that is a big thing to do. Also, when you regard that Martin Place train station is shut, so that's the eastern suburbs line gone. 100%. And pretty much, I don't think you could catch a train from anywhere other than Central. Yeah, they shut down the ferries. Yeah. They were, Circular Quay was a mess. Yep. Basically, they were under the illusion that there were bombs, yeah. multiple bombs. Which, I mean, again, err on the side of caution. 100%. But if I look back, if I listen back to a lot of those news bulletins now, well, the information we were saying is incorrect. Oh, yeah. But we're relying on the sources that we had at that time. No. Because at that time, the information was flowing, but no one really knew anything. And, I mean, if you harken back to 9-11, the great thing was, you know, the Sears Tower in Chicago has also been hit. And there, like, you know, the, what is it, the RCA building in yes. LA was... Information is going to flow out yes. as, and it takes. It's that period of time at the beginning of any incident where there is multiple sources, and a lot of them are wrong. Now, I have covered a few what's 
described as terrorism-style acts yeah. in Australia mm-hmm. ever since. Like, there's been a couple in Melbourne. Yeah. And the one thing that's come out of the Lint Siege is access to information and access to police officers giving mm. us information. Mm. Because what they realised is we will run with what we can, but it's not always going to be correct, or it is correct, and operationally they don't want the public to know. Exactly. Right. And that's a really important thing, yes. and that's where a police liaison officer or a media liaison officer with someone like ASIO, someone like the AFP, someone like the New South Wales Police, that's a critical role and you want someone really good at that job in that job. Yes. Now, we didn't have that up until that point. No. And this is something that the police in Victoria and the New South Wales Police have really tightened up, that ability for journalists to have access Mm. and clear and concise information and have an understanding that we're not always going to get the operational facts. Yeah. I mean, that was an interesting thing. The MLO uh, uh, guy who wound up joining ASIO on his first job, he was a journalist and his first job was the media liaison officer, which frustrated the hell out of him until they basically turned and said, you will set the policy for this because you're the guy who actually knows how to do it. And as, as opposed to going, no comment, no comment, no comment, which you'd expect, he'd basically turn around and say, I could tell you everything you want to know, mm. but as soon as I do that, I not only disrupt an intelligence operation, I put lives at risk. Now, a journalist is immediately going, oh, you mean to people going to die? You know what? If you start talking, yeah, because you're yeah. going to release operational information that can compromise not just our officers, but people around this organisation yeah. or this situation. So that's what you need. You need somebody who's delicate enough to be able to handle it. And they didn't have that on no, the No, and I've had the good fortune since then to sit down with Victorian police and judges mm. and coroners as well as other journalists at a roundtable and discuss what they think we need to know, mm-hmm. when we need to know it, and then they've in turn told us why they don't always give us the certain information. Yeah. So there has been an, a clearer line of communication between media and police, which has been a real win out of this. Oh, definitely. Now, we knew it was even more serious when Tony Abbott spoke. Yes, because so we he, went live to that. He made his he his press presso where he basically said we've got an incident of politically motivated violence in the city of Sydney. Yes, and the one thing that we we also have learned ever since we've got to be really cautious about declaring something a terrorism incident. Oh yeah. So we're not so quick to call something terrorism unless the police have told us that that's what it is. Yeah. It's either an incident unless it's deemed terrorism. Right, so that's the the term you now use. It is an incident. It's an incident. You will find that some people will say police are yet to say whether it's terror-related because Mm -hmm. they want to get that kind of thought process in there. It's kind of a sneaky way of saying we think this is terrorism. A little bit of audience manipulation. 100%. Never goes astray for the ratings. But we are very cautious now about labelling something terrorism. Now, this was inevitably labelled a terrorism incident. Well, it had all the dressings of it. You see, it had the Arabic flag, not the correct one, as we said last yes. episode. He should have had an ISIS one, but he didn't because he didn't know how to get one. And ISIS didn't want him in the club. Yes. And also, he essentially made it a, a politically motivated thing by saying, I want to talk to the Prime Minister. Right? As yep. soon as he does that, that's going to push it towards politically motivated violence. The problem is, it's not. It wasn't. It was a psychotic break. Now, how as it went on, how did you feel about like as it was everything was unfolding? Did you start going, "Hang on a minute, this is a bit"? Well, yeah. So we went from up to thirty hostages to down to I think it was like six or twelve. Like, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very much. We said up to thirty could be in the hundreds. We didn't know the logistics or what was actually going on, and we didn't know it for a very long time. No. Now I was delivering news every fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. so the content was. Changing. 
Yeah. Consistently changing. And I finally went off for air about 2 p.m. I was pretty shattered. I'd been there since 3 a.m. Yeah, it must be bloody tough. And went home, had a rest, and then got up to come back in at 3 a.m. Well, it was about 2.30 a.m. And that's when, listening to the radio, and that's when I heard the shots fired out. That's when the incident Really came to a head. Was terminated, literally. Literally terminated. And the response was pretty sad. It was a terrible result. I mean, look, it really was going to come to this because essentially Minus wouldn't engage. No. That was the big problem. He wouldn't engage. They had to shoot him. Negotiators and he wasn't coming out. All right. So we had that problem. I mean, there was that amazing moment where a whole bunch of them just ran out the door. There was a side door that was open and they just, and you know, you could see the tax squad there literally going, go, 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 getting them down the street. Now, that was an incredibly delicate moment because he could have literally turned around and said, you're going to send them back or I'm going to start shooting these hostages. Yeah. Now, he didn't. So that probably for the police was a moment where they were able to go, hang on, we may have a breakthrough here. Well, at this stage, he must have been tired. He would have been exhausted. Yep. All right. Now, I think the, the hostages escaped around about three or four in the afternoon. It was, I remember it was still daylight. Yeah. But then again, summer, who knows? They, they got out. But then that's a, like no one's sleeping in there. Right? No. So you've been up. It's 2.30 in the morning. You're buggered. He's and like the stress involved, the, like the emotional, mental stress, physically, that has a toll. But mentally and emotionally, it would have been dreadful. Now, the whole thing was when the tactical squad went in, and it came out again. It's in the inquest. Wrong ammunition. The snipers were unable to get a clear shot. Yes, there were snipers, right? And the problem was, one, they couldn't get a clear shot on him because there were always people by the windows. And two, they would have been firing through a window, like a closed window. They were in buildings in like behind glass so they couldn't be seen trying to find a clear shot. Again, a bullet going through a window, through a second window and into a person, there is so many moments of refraction that will descend that bullet in all directions. So that's a problem. The other thing was the recommendation was they used what's called 9mm, which is a large but slow round. Now, the thing is they went in with 5.56, I think it was, Mm -hmm. Uh, according to the inquest. They went in with that, which is a high-speed round, which has a tendency to shatter. It was a marble room. And that is how one of the- And that is how Katrina Dawson- Yep, died. Was mortally wounded. She yep. was lying on the ground and the bullet shattered and a fragment hit her. Yep. And that killed her. Now, Tory Johnson was already dead because a man Monis had shot him. Yep. And that was the gunshot that brought the police into the room. Now, one of the officers, I think they said there was something like 17 bullet wounds in Monis. So, I mean, that's really like, again- Trigger discipline was, to me, that's somebody's pulling the trigger way too much. Yep. For 17 rounds, I mean, they were like, we've got to make sure he's down. And also, I think there was that idea of if he had a dead man switch on him or some way of activating what was believed to be an explosive, yep. they wanted him out. When you're spraying upwards of 20 rounds around a room, that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And like to be somebody lying on the floor hoping one doesn't hit you, you're in a room that's going to bounce things around like a ping pong table. Yeah. Like there was just so much that was – the way I'm going to say it is ill-prepared. It, essentially, the police – hit a wall that they were not ready to climb over. 
Yeah, and a lot of it, especially the next morning, once it all started to clear up, that's when the questions started to be mm. asked. How As did they two, should. How did two people die? And that's what kind of came out of the inquiry. And there was, I did find for a while, there were a lot of finger pointing. Oh, of course. There was no clarity on who made what decision and when. Mm-hmm. And I think the inquiry really kind of solidified a lot of that. Yeah. Well, essentially, look, let's be honest, the greatest skill in any manager is their ability to cover their ass. 100%. Right? And the thing is, like, I, I look at it from the ASIO perspective because mm-hmm. that's my perspective. I, I sort of like, oh, geez, there would have been some risks being slapped. But also, if you actually look, and it comes out of the inquest as well, where the, the coroner basically turns around and says, Asia were kind of hamstrung in trying to assess this guy. Yep. And also the nature of what he was doing really was serial pestering. Yep. The guy wanted to insert himself into the narrative. He wanted to be a hero. He even told his wife, I want to be a martyr. This guy just wanted to be famous. And yeah, and we gave him the fame. And We handed it to him. We literally handed him the f- Well, we didn't hand it to him so much as he took it from us. He created this thing. But you know what? There's that old thing of it's better to live in infamy than obscurity. No, thanks. I'll, I'll take obscurity every day. Thank you. <laughs> but, I don't want to be remembered as this. But what was interesting is I've never seen a city go into, not even during this pandemic, go into a lockdown like it did then. Oh. Literally the world stopped for people in the city of Sydney. Yeah. I'm sitting there at a Christmas lunch yeah, and it was, as I said uh, last week, you know, my wife turned around and said, what is going on? And my mother was like, what's going on? Come on, mate. And that's when I said, look, this is going on in the city. And my family just like, literally everyone just got up from the table and walked into the TV, like yep. the lounge room and sat down in front of the TV. And that's where we sat for the next three hours yep. until, I mean, quite honestly, and thank God, one of my sister-in-laws turned around and said, I don't want to do this. I just don't want to watch this. No, I'll it was deal hard. with it tomorrow. It was hard. Right. Personally, I'm just like sitting there the same I was the same the way I was during 9/11. Like I just sat there in front of the TV going what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. Tell me more, tell me more. I want to know more. And that's yep. the other thing. We all want to know what the hell is going on. Yes, and that and that was that necessity, that was that driver for, you know, people in radio and news to consistently be updating yeah. even though we didn't always know exactly what was going on. We were just going by what our sources were telling us and what we were hearing. Well, there's also that moment in all of these incidents, particularly a siege where it plateaus. There's yep. no more information to be had. We pretty much know what's going on. Yeah, there was a point where I felt like I was repeating quite a yeah. bit of the information. I'm just repeating. There's nothing more I can tell you right now. Yeah. But the thing is you can't stop your bullets going, oh, look, there's nothing going on at the moment. We'll get back to you when something happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're going to lose your listeners. Yeah. Um, now, the, the other thing was, I mean, there's that moment of plateau, which is really, yep. really important to consider. But then on the flip of it, there is those moments, like the moments of high drama, again, so much happens so quickly. And it is. It's one of those classic things of hurry up and wait. It's like, you know, information flows in very quickly at the yep. beginning. Everyone's trying to sieve out what is correct and what isn't. And then it's, it plateaus. We've, we finally get a, a stable platform to work on. And then one thing happens and then- Analysis comes in from all different angles. Mm -hmm. And again, your population, it comes down to that golden rule of intelligence. Do you need to know? Yep. And a lot of the time, no, you don't. The other thing that really, I mean, if you remember Martin Place in the week afterwards, the flowers were just- Oh, it was was a sea of flowers. It was a sea of flowers. But also another interesting tidbit that a lot of people don't realise as well, from a FM radio station perspective- Yeah. We think about everything. So the next day, because two people had lost their lives, we pulled all happy music. We pulled the breakfast show. Yeah. We reflected the city in a way that everyone was just feeling somber. 
Well, yeah, you know what? It was exhausting and there was a mood about it and we reflected that and you'll find most radio stations did that as well. Which is, I mean, talking about it now, you know, with mm. 2020 hindsight and the yep. distance and all that, it's still an exceptionally sombre thing. There's not a lot of jokes to be had in this. No. In fact, there shouldn't be. But it comes down to, again, it comes down to the thing, and I used to do a, a gag about it in my show, which is it's the lone wolf. Yes. And this was, this is the guy. He was the guy that literally made Australian policing and intelligence go, we need to do something yep. about the lone actor. We've got to do something to in a, find a way of identifying them early and dealing with yep. it. Now, the interesting thing is, and it comes back to our episode two weeks ago about the Fixated Persons Unit, they talked about a Fixated Persons Assessment Centre where they can engage with the person. Yes. Particularly if, they, if it's somebody that's suffering from a mental illness. Yeah, you want to be able to engage with them in a way that basically brings them slowly out into the light so then you can deal with their psychosis. But even the unit, even though it makes up, it is made up of police, mm. they do have mental health staff. Of course they do. You yes. have to. But the problem is, as we said in that previous episode, there is that problem with the fixated person's unit that it's actually being used as a cudgel yes. as opposed to- what you know, is for yeah, it's not exactly being used the right way. How do you feel? This is a this is probably a, a, a strange question, but looking back, how do you feel it affected your life as a journalist, your career as a journalist? It's one of those things where it's, this is going to sound really sad, but you live for those moments as a journalist. No, I understand that entirely because you kind of similar to doing. What you did in Asia. Well, the great, that great thing, the Gulf War started and it was like, yeah, this is what we trained for. This yes, is the job. This is what we trained for. It was a moment where all of a sudden I was delivering information that was important that people needed to hear mm. and needed to understand. And even afterwards, the fallout from it and the inquiry, I was covering stuff that people needed to know and we needed to reflect that. Yeah. Being in the city and being from the city, you know, it was good to be that person who gave people kind of an idea of what it felt like to be caught up in this moment. Mm. And we, you know, uh, the only other time I've ever felt that is when we had those bushfires in the Blue Mountains and I was up in the Blue Mountains covering the bushfires. Yeah. The agility of a radio or any kind of journalism, but particularly radio journalist, is one of those things that I live for Mm. and one of the reasons why I do my job. Does that answer it? That answers the question brilliantly. Because <laughs> it was. It was a watershed moment in Australian yes. like, intelligence and policing history. A lot of fingers got pointed. It, it revealed a lot of problems. Mm. Hopefully those problems have been solved. Maybe some of them have been solved too much. From an ASIO perspective, though, what would have been the take-homes from that? The big take-home from that was the fact that there was information that was Man Monis was passing to, like, sending letters to government yep. departments. They weren't being passed on to ASIO. Yeah, so no one was really talking to so each no other. So no one was – it was a massive thing of communication. It was like essentially the coroner turned around and said ASIO was hamstrung in their ability to assess this guy yep. because they didn't have all the information. So essentially what they basically done is gone, right, Give them everything. If somebody sends you something and you're worried about it, you think it might be national security, pass it to the guys who deal with national security. Give it to ASIO. Don't give it to the police. Give it to ASIO. If you think it needs to go to the police, send a copy to them, send a copy to ASIO, send a copy to anyone. Like Instead of holding on to the information and worrying about who should see it, give it to everyone. Yep. Because eventually somebody's going to go, oh, hang on, we need to know this. This is important. Because, I mean, particularly the fact ASIO had had multiple investigations into this guy. He, They'd had 40 complaints to the National Security Hotline yep. about Monas. 40 calls. Now, that's huge. But it also, like, 
they have to triage that. The National Security Hotline had something like 20,000 calls in its first 12 months. 10,000 of them had to be followed up. They were all leads. Now, you have to triage this. You have to go, yep. right, That you know, someone says, yeah, there's a guy in the backyard who's building an Exocet rocket. Yeah, we need to check out him right now. Yeah. Right? But, yeah, there's a guy next door and he keeps sort of yelling Arabic stuff over the fence at me. Um, does he speak English? He's probably asking you to move your car. Yeah. <laughs> Turn down the music. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the, the whole thing was it's that big thing of going, look, we don't need to look at this right now, but we, we do need to keep an eye on these yeah. leads. So the thing was, as they discovered, the stuff with Man Monis and the National Security Hotline, ASIO were following those leads up. They weren't a priority because they, the way they'd been triaged. Yeah. And it was something that also came out of the inquest was, you need to do something about this triage system because there are leads. It wasn't that the leads were dropped. Yep. It's just, which again, 2020 hindsight tells us that those leads should have been followed up immediately. But because of the history they had with Monus and the nature of the complaints, like stuff on his Facebook page, they had, an, they had to, you know, got one of their Arabic analysts to sit down and read his Facebook page to go, oh, it's more of the same stuff. Yeah. And there's no intelligence in there for us and there's no real implied threat. So essentially, ASIO's big thing was- We can't do anything. We can't do anything about this, but we should have flagged it more heavily with the police to go, you need to watch this guy because psychotically we think he's got a problem. Yes, and he did. Did he ever. So there we are. I feel like we've pretty much- I think we've covered most of it. We've covered most of it. Yeah, I feel kind of creepy about it though. It's like, it's, <laughs> that. honest to God, I've spent the last week reading this inquest and just like- Shaking my head going, why did we pick this? Why did I pick this? But, you know, it needs to be talked about. It absolutely needs to be talked about. And it's definitely something which I can't see happening again. I think this is something that has been nipped in the bud. I think we can see it happening again. We can see an incident like this yes, happening again. 100%. But, but I don't not think like it's going to be handled half the way it was this no. time. It's going to be next time you're going to have a s- series of very slick negotiators. You're going to have police and ASIO and everybody talking to everybody. And there's going to be you at the front with a microphone telling Australia that it's okay, guys. We got it under control. We got it. We got it. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and look, if we brought up any bad memories or triggered anything, uh, that was never our intention. Not at all. No. Well, you have triggered me. (laughs) No, because I called you a friend. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. He's stalking me. (laughs) Defriend on Facebook. Oh, no. Block, block. Oh. 